Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts, Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens, discuss tax-advantaged investment strategies to help you grow your wealth. From commodities to real estate, private equity, agribusiness, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Hagens, and today we're going to be talking about vertically integrated OZ investing uh, and what Ryan Tobias, the managing partner at Jackson Dearborn, is seeing in the market right now, talking about a lot of the exciting projects that they have going on. So, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Andy. I appreciate it. Yeah, and to start off, uh, it's, it's good to have another Michigan resident here on the program. Um, so are you a Tigers fan or, or do you have another team? I am a uh, sad sack, diehard Tigers fan, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we, we are too. And uh, it's been kind of a rough year. Um, but, you know, I had, I had Michael Episcope on the program recently from Origin Investments, and he's a Cubs fan. And, you know, their season's going almost as poorly as ours is, so... Well, they got a fairly recent ring, so they can't complain too much. We're uh, we're pushing uh, forty years out now. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. So let's let's turn to some happier happier topics here. Uh, Jackson Dearborn and a lot of the funds that you have going. I know Jackson Dearborn has a focus on multifamily and student housing and mixed use. So let's start with these sectors. What is it about these sectors? that you find appealing, you know, as opposed to, to other common sectors, um, you know, at the institutional real estate level? Yeah, I mean, you know, part of it, to be honest with you, is that this is the real estate that I've worked in my entire career. And so, you know, it may have gone, may have gone differently had I come out of college and started a career in office or industrial or retail or something like that. But, um, but I started out in multifamily and, uh, Kind of branched into student housing a few years after that, and really uh, enjoyed that sector and kind of wrapping my arms around that. That was, you know, I felt like the student housing business was still kind of evolving. This is in the mid 2000s and um, maturing in a way that it's really become more of an institutional asset class. But yeah, we 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 love multifamily and student housing for a lot of the same reasons a lot of folks do. I mean, it um, it's quick to respond to the market. It's got government-backed capital markets options and and HUD and the agencies. Um, it's just got a few things going for it that, that others don't. And it's um, and just having, I don't know, we like having hundreds of tenants versus having one or two. Uh, it feels like it's risk mitigant. But again, I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of that is just, that's kind of what you know. Um, and it's been a, a bit of a darling of the, the real estate industry the last five or 10 years. I don't know if that'll always be the case, but it's been a good run. So when you say it's been a darling, are you you're referring to student housing or, or multifamily in general? Yeah, well, it was, you know, there was a time where student was definitely uh, a bit of a darling. Um, and then it really since yeah, COVID kind of upset that a little bit. And it's been you know, multifamily is along with industrials really been the bell of the ball the last couple of years. Uh, but yeah, there was there was a time there where student was really, you know, coming out of the recession, fair, you know, they did a great recession, fared really well um, and showed resiliency. Um, and in fact, I think, you know, even through COVID, coming out of COVID, it's shown that uh, it has a remarkable resiliency. Um, there was a tough year in certain markets during that time period, but it's rebounded really well. And uh, I can tell you, our student housing portfolio is doing the best it's ever done by a landslide. 
And, and so why is that just the occupancy rate or uh, just the valuation? Yeah, or? yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. Occupancy is, I mean, you know, we'll be at literally a hundred point zero percent, I think this year um, for occupancy. Uh, that's been, I don't know that we've ever done that before. We get a lot of bets, um, get almost 5,000 bets. And so, uh, but we really should be there. I mean, maybe we'll be 99 point something, but we should be all the way there. Rent growth has been pretty strong. Um, you know, some of that's inflation and some of that is, um, it just kind of macroeconomic factors, but, uh, we've done really well. And, you know, we're, we're at, you know, big 10 schools, um, that have fared really well. Uh, there are certainly some smaller universities, smaller privates and, and, uh, you know, second tier schools in the Midwest and Northeast that have struggled a bit, but uh, where we're at, they're fared really well. So, so big 10 schools are sort of perennially popular they're the the class a of, of student housing yeah you could say that i mean you know it, it really what we talk about in the student housing space you know you've got sort of what we call tier one tier two and tier three universities um it, it, and looking at it from sort of a investment grade kind of perspective and tier one or by and large your your uh, large publics um with Division one football programs. So that's that's Big Ten, that's Pac-12, that's SEC, uh, ACC, et cetera. Um, those are your you know your top-notch schools, and and, it, and in particular those with really high kind of academic standards. Those tend to you know they just hold up really well. Um, they have a national or international draw. Um, then you get your tier twos, which are you know a mix of private and then kind of your publics that are sort of your secondary state schools, a little bit smaller, more of a regional draw. Um, you know those in the Midwest and the Northeast areas that have flat, you know, or lower growth or even declining population bases, those are, those are challenging. Um, you know, those tend to draw regionally, you know, like you mentioned we're here, here in Michigan, I'm here in Michigan, um, you know, a school like Central Michigan University, it draws predominantly from sort of Northern Central Michigan. It's not an area with a whole lot of population growth. Um, you know, they've kind of struggled with it all. Uh, and then you have your tier three type schools, which are, really small schools. Um, yeah, you're Holland, Michigan, Hope College, maybe would be like a tier three. Uh, mm -hmm. really small privates, uh, the market, those are, is a lot smaller. Uh, those, most of us are focused on those tier one schools and, and a selection of tier two schools and, you know, higher growth markets. So I, I know Jackson Dearborn has historically invested a lot in student housing, uh, but then you've shied away and, and pivoted away for the last couple of years. And, and now you're, sort of looking into it again. So could you kind of walk us through the trends of, um, you know, obviously in, in the interest in the first place, you know, you mentioned the resiliency and, and all that, but, but what, what caused the pivot? I mean, it sounded like that was even b before uh, COVID or the lockdown, which yeah. is obviously a factor. So, so what caused the pivot? Let's, let's start with that. Yeah. So, well, historically, you know, student housing is a little bit different beast than, than multifamily, right? It's, um, it leases up annually, like cyclically. You need, you're pre-leasing all year round. You open up on August 15th or September 1st, and then, you know, hopefully you, you fill up your properties and you know pat yourself on the back. And the next day you start leasing again for the for the next year. And so it's a very, you know, it's a bit of a hamster wheel in that case, and it's a little more operationally intensive, um, as you might imagine. You're renting to 19, 20, 21 year olds. Um, there's all of the all of the drama and, and whatnot that comes with that. And so, so, and, you know, and, and they're in these smaller towns or around the country. And, it, you know, for all those reasons, you know, 
looking back you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, that they would trade a, a higher yield compared to multifamily. You know, I mean, let's say, a, just using a cap rate as an example, if the cap rate for multifamily at the time was five, then a, a comparable student housing property maybe was a six or something along those lines. Um, anywhere from 100 basis points or 150 basis points or more difference because, you know, again, you're in a smaller town, the operational challenges, et cetera. Um, well, I, I, sorry, I find that really interesting that, the, you know, student housing would trade a discount because with grant, you know, Pell Grants and, fe, you know, the federal money flowing to schools, I would view it in some ways as a, a safer bet, I, I suppose, depending on the market. Well, I think that, you know, that gets to where I was going there is that there, I think that that, that, you know, institutional capital and the investment market sort of agreed with you and, and you saw the return difference start to converge and, and all of a sudden student housing was trading for a similar cap rate to say multifamily uh, or maybe even lower in certain cases for really, you know, great product that, you know, some of the top schools at a, at a UC Boulder uh, here in Ann Arbor or, um, you know, Austin. And so, that to us was you know, knowing the challenges and, and we managed most of those student housing beds ourselves. It's, you know, just didn't really make sense to us. Mm -hmm. um, it is operationally difficult and, you know, it's a limited market, right? So even a big school, maybe a school with 50,000 kids at it um, can sometimes be upset pretty easily because, uh, you know, three or four projects might be built at one time in a way that a larger, MSA, let's say, you know, buy a property in Boston, you know, like three or four projects open. I mean, the comparable amount of supply that would have to come into the market to upset the market would be 50,000 units or something like that. And so, right. you know, the, the Apple card is just a little bit more easily upset. And that's where you see some ups and downs a little bit. And anyway, we felt like there was a number of reasons there actually should be that spread of return. Um, and, you know, it wasn't there. So we kind of, you know, pivoted a little bit. Um, it's since come back a little bit, but that's really more to do with what we've seen happen in the multifamily space, which is all of a sudden cap rates in multifamily go to go to three or upper twos, low threes. Even in this kind of rising interest rate environment, still, you know, even you know high threes to low fours, negative leverage type situations in certain markets. Mm -hmm. You know, that has created this gap again. The student hasn't, you know, certainly hasn't gone that quite to that level. Um, and so then, you know, that became somewhat interesting again, if, you know, with looking at multifamily versus student, if there was that delta there that we felt was the appropriate risk adjusted return. So when we're talking about student housing, are we talking about like regulated student housing that's like on campus? Or are we talking about like a, a multifamily uh, asset that's like adjacent to campus that's sort of uh, unofficial student housing. I mean, is there any overlap or what, what's the technical or precise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is, you know, this year we're talking about private, private off-campus student housing. Okay. okay. Uh, there, you know, there's obviously there's on-campus housing that university owns and manages. And, and there is a sort of a hybrid space because there's a fair number of public-private partnership deals out there where there is privately owned or managed on-campus housing. Uh, that's still a fairly small percentage of the overall space. Um, you know, when we talk about student housing, it's kind of, from, you know, as an investment class, we're talking about private off-campus. Got it. Okay. 
So as you began to pivot away from student housing, what were the other sectors, I should say, subsectors um, that you invested in in the meanwhile? Well, you know, by and large, multifamily. I mean, we'd always done multifamily and student housing, and um, yeah, we've just generally found multifamily to be easier, more consistent. Um, obviously, it's been extremely attractive asset class in the last couple of years, but it's really overall been one of the best performing asset classes for 20-some years now. Um, and so we have a lot of experience in that, so we just sort of allocate a little more time and resources into that into that space. Um, and we're doing a lot of ground-up development now. Um, that's a mix of uh, opportunity zone and not opportunity zone. Uh, yeah, we love the opportunity space. Opportunity zone space. Uh, we've typically been more long-term holders anyway, so it kind of fits with our ethos. Mm-hmm. Um, and so combining that with you know the asset class we like, which is multifamily, uh, it's been a good combo. So you, you mentioned you know cap rates they got kind of crazy in the multifamily world down into the threes, um, but but obviously with opportunity zones. You're doing mostly ground up construction. So, you know, do, do you view those cap rates as a problem or are they more an opportunity? Because I, I guess from the perspective of ground up construction, um, they imply a, a higher relative ROI for the ground up construction versus, you know, taking my capital and, you know, quote unquote, overpaying for a, a value add asset. Right. Well, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a very different equation too, right? I mean, you know, we don't get, you're not getting caught up in, and they going in yield. I mean, we're we're solving for yield on cost, you know, to make sure the development pencil is sort of on its own, right? And that is more or less tied to existing current cap rates. Um, you know, you want to have a, a spread between your you know your development yield and current cap rates. But you know, we've always had a pretty you know we've always tried to be a good 150 basis points between our development yield on cost and existing cap rates. And as it's moved a bit, you know, we we try to move that. As well, but when you're looking at it through being a tax advantage investment over 10 plus years, yeah, cap rates of 2022 are not super relevant. You know, I mean, the project will be complete in 2024, 2025. Um, we'll look to refinance, you know, at that point or a year or so after that. Um, you know, so obviously, what cap rates are at that moment is important, and we do make some projections on that. Although it's, it's difficult, and um, you know, and then you're looking at you know what's what's this theoretically going to be worth ten years from now, which fools you know, Aaron to try to project that. But you know, we do. We you know we we offer some cap rate expansion and growth rates over a ten year period, and, and try to put a put a round number to that. Um, but it's, it's just a very different equation than just trying to buy a value add or core four plus type of deal in, in today's market. So how conservative is that underwriting? So, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, modeling and cap rates after 10 years. I mean, there's obviously a fine line between giving you that margin of safety versus, you know, being so conservative that you never green light a project. Um, you know, so, so what's your approach or philosophy with underwriting? Yeah, I mean, I, I I feel like everybody says this. I mean, I feel like we're we we try to underwrite conservatively. You know, I mean, I feel like we are. I, I can say this. I mean, we the lowest cap rate, exit cap rate we've ever used was maybe like four and a half percent. You know, when the market was three and a quarter, right? And so um, we've always felt like we're you know giving ourselves quite a bit of room for error. Um, but 
we are being more conservative going forward. We're using really hefty interest rate reserves and rate caps and, uh, you know, a, a much larger contingency line item on construction and all of that part is kind of settling a little bit. Um, you know, overall, we're just, you know, we're, we're trying to go into these deals eyes wide open and be, you know, really conservative and well positioned with our, with our capital to make sure that we're, we get this project done, we can get it leased up, we can get it refinanced and, you know, obviously avoid any capital calls. And, um, you know, so far so good, but you know, it's certainly not been without its challenges. Well, you know, there's certainly, it seems like a unlimited demand for multifamily units. So it's like, if you can get them built, um, you know, you're going to be able to, to lease up that asset. Uh, it, go ahead. No. Yeah. I think, I mean, yeah, I, I hope so. Um, you know, it, it <laughs> has been the case. Um, you know, what that looks like the next year or two, three years from now, as some of these projects in our current construction pipelines are built up, we'll see. Um, obviously interest rates have gone up a lot. That's got a fat you know, effect on the housing market. Um, yeah. On one hand, it's, Kind of force prices to come down, but it also makes it more difficult to to buy a home. Um, you know, mm-hmm. rates stay high, which I don't know that they will, but if they do, um, you know, that certainly affects our back end values, but it also probably puts more renters into the market. So, um, you know, pros and cons, I suppose. So you mentioned the construction costs, or you mentioned construction kind of getting under control or settling down a little bit. Is that a reference to like construction loans, or you just mean direct? Uh, inflation labor yeah, and talks. I mean construction loans are, are are as challenging as they've been in a long time. Um the capital yeah. are you know no one knows which way it's up a little bit right now. So there's definitely uh, a lot less capital out there for construction financing and anything that's not pretty low leverage, pretty conservative. Um uh, a construction costs or material uh, specifically is it's just stabilizing out a little bit. We've seen commodity prices come down pretty significantly across the board, um, you know, at the, you know, the futures level. Um, and we're starting to see that a little bit um, in certain items, uh, kind of in a project construction cost schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not, it's still ugly and, and not to say things are coming down necessarily more just, it's felt like they were going up at 5% a month for a while there. And maybe that's an exaggeration, but that's certainly what it felt like. And, and now it's, it's those last, you know, three or four months, it felt like the cost was more or less stabilized. Some still coming up or others kind of coming down a little bit. Um, you know, we'll see where that takes us. Do you think the commodities market is just pricing in the recession? They're basically saying, yeah, we, we think we're going to get inflation under control. That's the good news. The bad news is that we're doing that by going into recession. Oh, no doubt. I mean, that, that, Seems to me most of the indicators what the market is pricing in, both in you know bond market and commodity pricing, it's pricing in a, a recession um, of indeterminate length and depth. But mm-hmm. that's that, that's certainly you know those tea leaves seem pretty clear to me um, right now. I mean we have no idea how this is going to play out. That's what the market seems to think. Um, we tend to think it will too. Um, we think interest rates, high interest rates are relatively short term, um, almost because they have to be. And, uh, you know, the things that we're more focused on, things like the 10-year treasury and whatnot, we'll, you know, we'll price that in sooner rather than later as we get, um, you know, as economic indicators that are kind of lagging right now, start to really unfold over the next quarter or two. Okay. So if I'm an LP, you know, or institutional investor, and I'm, I'm looking at multifamily and different private placement offerings, 
you know, how, how do I, how do I integrate the recession, I guess, into my thinking and my investment thesis? I mean, I, I tend to look at it as, as basically a good thing in terms of, you know, it's better to get in when valuations are a little bit more reasonable on assets. Mm-hmm. Um, although we're starting to see, you know, inventory is piling up and, and usually that precedes a price drop. So I, I feel like maybe, you know, three months from now, six months from now, even, uh, we'll start to see prices be a little more attractive for all kinds of assets, um, certainly for housing. Um, you know, but on the other side of the equation, you have to have cash to put the cash to work, right? So that's the issue with the recession is am I selling low to buy low, you know, versus a year ago, maybe I was selling high and, and buying high. I mean, at the end of the day, does it really make that much of a difference? Is it just a wash or, or should it change how I approach things as an LP? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Uh, you know, it's hard to know, you know, current pricing, uh, yeah, I mean, transactions have really just slowed like on existing assets as people, as it tends to when rates move quickly and sellers say, uh, hold on, I don't, you know, I'm not ready to accept that my property might be worth that, buyers react quickly and say, listen, rates 100 basis points higher, I mean, my price is going to reflect that. Seller says, you know, let's just, let's wait and see. I'm not so sure that I'm a seller here. Maybe I'll wait and see what the market looks like six or 12 months from now. Uh, so we haven't even, we really haven't even had enough data points to kind of know where pricing lands. But, you know, assuming, you know, I mean, this, obviously these higher rates are, are here to stay for the short term, um, you know, through the end of the year, at the very least, and probably well into 2023. Um, you know, it, there are some deals that have to transact, and we will see some more data points there. And, I, I, you know, it's hard to, like the stock market, it's hard to buy the, buy the low, get the trough or whatnot. I mean, you, know, you just buy an asset that you have, you know, the market you have conviction in feel like you're probably getting a little bit of discount from where it was previously. And, um, it, you know, I don't expect multifamily and most of the markets, you know, most of the kind of stronger markets around the country to have some huge off cliff and really, you know, without another, you know, I feel like they've probably already drawn down 15 or 20%. I expect them to go down another 20 or 30%. Uh, probably not. Um, but there will be more transactions. It's more kind of sellers to terms. Um, and for us in the ground up space, you know, I mean, we are, you know, it, it's a long game, right? So, I mean, you know, you're looking at something that, you know, might be getting out of the ground, let's say Q4 of this year and opening two years from now, leasing up, you know, and, and looking to stabilize, either refinance or sell, let's say three to four years from now, you know, and so a lot can happen in that time period. I mean, we could go into a pretty deep recession and come fully back out of it, you know, by then. We looked at data from the Great Recession and, you know, I mean, that that would have been the case, right? If we did a, a ground-up project right now in 2008, by the time you got out in 2010, rents had, had taken a little bit of dip and were back stronger than they were before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so we're, you know, the what we're focused on is like, you know, we believe in this location and this market, this asset, and we like this basis and still call it a hundred thousand a unit below what, you know, an existing property will sell for right now. Um, then yeah, that feels, that feels good. So it feels like a good investment and it feels like maybe, you know, we will weather the, weather the storm swinging hammers. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've, I've had that conversation with a couple of guests on the show. Uh, Meb Faber comes to mind. 
uh, who wrote the Ivy portfolio book. And, you know, we kind of talked about the illiquid nature of alternatives, uh, you know, some of these private placement offerings, uh, you know, maybe it's a feature, not a bug, right? Like if, if, if I own an asset that I'm not selling in the next two years and the price dips 20% and then it goes up 35% at the end of those two years, like what difference does a swing really make? You know, it, the only difference it would make would be psychological, the psychological ride that I'm, I'm along the ride for, but because it's illiquid, um, who cares? Right. I mean, and as, as a sponsor, right. you, you're doing these projects, you know, year in, year out, you're, you're launching projects probably every year over decades. And that's going to kind of dollar cost average in and out over time. Right. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think that, you know, things get, really ugly. I mean, you're looking, you know, sales that will happen or be folks that have to sell for one reason or another, whether it's just the end of a fund life or uh, it's a private deal, it's a, you know, a, situ a family situation or something like that, or, you know, those are forced to sell because they're overlapping or whatnot, um, which, again, yeah, mostly spaces, which I don't see like a wave of that happening or some deals we've seen trade, it's older products that your really high price per pound basis where, you know, folks maybe have bridge debt at a, you know, 80 plus percent leverage. Um, those are deals that probably give me a little, would give me a little heartburn right now. Uh, but beyond that, you know, I don't see, I don't see a lot of carnage out there. I just see depressed values for a while. Maybe that's wishful thinking, but that's just kind of what, you know, what our internal yeah, absolutely. So let, let's talk about opportunity zones. So I know Jackson Dearborn is a big believer in OZs. So uh, across your whole portfolio, how many of your assets are in opportunity zones uh, or, or are, I guess on a dollar weighted basis or project weighted basis? Um, you know, are you guys moving to being to being like 100 percent opportunity zone or is it more uh, opportunistic, pun intended, um, <laughs> what, what projects to pursue? Yeah, when you're talking about opportunities, I use the word opportunity like 10,000 times. <laughs> um, the, um, so we're, you know, the answer is, I mean, you know, we have a, a large kind of existing portfolio of, of existing assets, which yeah, doesn't really matter if they're an opportunity zone or not. If they're just existing assets, yeah, they're, they're there. Um, we're just operating them. But you got to go for it. I think the development pipeline for the last couple of years has been probably – 80% of what we've been doing is in the, is in the opportunity zone. They are wow. Okay. Deals. On a go forward basis. Um, we started to ratchet that down a little bit and so that our future pipeline is closer to 50, 50. And that was really just because we weren't sure what was going to happen with the program. And we're still not sure um, to a certain degree, there's legislation kind of going through the committee right now that would extend the program. Um, and it's got great bipartisan support and we believe, that it will get through and it would be, it would be great for the program it would extend the life, um, uh, offer up some of the benefits that have kind of been going away as far as uh, step up the basis, et cetera. And so we, we started ratcheting that down a little bit, which we, you know, we just didn't know. I mean, that, that legislation was kind of, yeah, it was uncertain. And um, going forward, I'd say, yeah, at least 50%, if not more of the development projects we do are, we've completed six we have 300 construction I mean, we're one of the more active opportunities on developers in the country um, we jumped in with both feet back in you know, 2018 really when the legislation was still in its uh, 
the final effects now. Yeah. Uh, and, and we love the program. Like I said it, it earlier in the cast here, I, you know, we're, we like being long-term holders. We're a relatively young company, relatively young principals over here. And um, so it, it you know, fits with our general mentality about real estate. And it's just a tremendous program, right? I mean, offsetting your capital gains till 2026, not having to pay any capital gains taxes on the on the profits in the back end of the 10 years, and no depreciation recapture, you know, cost seg, accelerated bonus depreciation on these assets. That comes up to a big number. I mean, it's a really great tax advantage play. And there's some great alternatives along the way too. I mean, we're, you know. Everybody's thinking about this as a full 10-year-old, like you know, buy an asset, hold assets for 10 years and sell. Um, but there's some nuances to the bill that allow us to you know, build an asset, sell it, redeploy it into another opportunity zone asset, and do it again. And you know, over 10 years, you could do you could do three projects. And, you know, really, and, and that's without a taxable event to the LP. That's, that's without a taxable you know event along the way. As long as that all that money goes back into the, the QOF. And, and then goes back into a new project within one year. We can we can recycle that capital and do more projects with it. Um, so are you are you actively looking at doing that with your OZ fund? Got a couple. Yeah, we we're, we're really thinking about it with some projects. I mean, some some that may or may not make sense, but um, and that's kind of a, a nuance that I don't know. So we just discovered that, but you know, we been talking with professionals, folks that are in the space over the last year or so, kind of realized that. This is definitely something that can be done and maybe should be done um, to kind of stretch these dollars further, achieve better returns for our investors, uh, and do more OZ projects. Well, you know, especially if you think about the nature of the program where you're doing ground up development, then obviously, you know, you want to lease up the asset, stabilize the asset. But at that point, if it's cash flowing, that's not really helping your investors, right? Because any any net income coming out, it's not really, you know, depending on the details, it's not really tax advantage. But if you could redeploy it into another project to be weighted towards more future capital gain and sort of really weight the entire uh, 10 year path of the right. invested capital towards capital gain. I mean, from that financial perspective, that makes sense. It, do you have multiple OZ funds at Jackson Dearborn? Or can, you, can you talk a little bit about like the product? Yeah. Like, let's, let's say I'm a I'm an LP uh, as of July 2022. What are what are my options to invest with you all? Yeah, so unlike a lot of shops, I mean we we do not have like a large commingled fund. We're doing every project deal by deal. Um, you know the nomenclature of the program is that they're all called a fund, even if it's just one project. But they're yeah, so we have all these funds with their individual asset funds. So with us, there's usually a rolling schedule of, you know, at this time we have one project that's open for investment down in the greater Phoenix area. We go to another project in the, in the Denver MSA coming up for investment that, um, and it's just deal by deal. And yeah, that's, it's just a different way to look at it. Um, the larger fund approach has its pros and cons. On the one hand, you know, you're, Trusting the GP has got you know it's blind pool. You, know, you go out there and select great projects, fingers crossed. Um, but it's also perhaps you know a little you know a better risk you know uh, strategy just to spread it out amongst five, five, ten, twenty projects. Mm -hmm. um, but you're also probably paying kind of a little more fees and whatnot because you got a, a fund that's running it, and then you know they're partnering with developers like us to to do the project. 
Uh, oh, that that's interesting. So you, you I, I guess I was kind of wondering if that would give economy of scale, like from like a fund administration standpoint to have a fund with, you know, six or 10 projects. Do you think there's actually better economic efficiency with, with, a, with well, I, guess- I think it, it just depends on the nature of it. So, I mean, if, if it is a, if it's a developer like us doing a product, doing a larger, say we did a hundred million dollar fund, we did four or five projects out of that, then, then yes, it, you know, that's good economics, but most of the funds, not all, but, I think most of the funds you'll see out there is like a retail investor. If you go to your RIA or your investment advisor, you're going into a fund that is then going to be the LP with another developer like us. Right. And so, and, you know, yeah. So you're, you know, there's, you know, there's just two layers now, you know, with us, there's just one layer. We just don't happen to have a larger fund vehicle. We just do it individually. And truth be told, they're not in you know, these individual QOFs are not, um, I don't know. They're not as cumbersome as a larger commingled fund. You mentioned like the administration and the cost and whatnot. I mean, this is more like the, uh, you know, just the LP entity on a, on a project. I mean, there is obviously there's accounting and whatnot, but it's just not as quite as involved. Um, and then, you know, and then you know, we're, you know, we are the manager of that fund and we're also the developer. We have an affiliated GC, so it's kind of a vertical integration with us and investors come in with us and some of them are in six or seven projects and they've almost created a mini fund dynamic for themselves by, by kind of spreading that out. Um, but folks, I think come to us that, you know, we have a lot of investors who are real estate uh, men or women and they like to look at a deal itself and mm-hmm. look at our underwriting and really dig into the location of that particular asset and say, this is a long, I like this, like, I get this, I, I know that area, it's awesome, you guys are going to kill it there, and I want to put all my money into, you know, into this project, versus, you know, you choose, you know, I guess, one ten good ones, so, yeah, it's, there are pros and cons to both method, but that's just the way that we've chosen to, to structure ours. I, I really appreciate that, just honestly, there's pros and cons to each method, I mean, I, I think that's totally true, and it, it appeals a uh, diversified fund versus a single project fund might appeal to a different kind of investor or de- depending on the situation, even the same investor, you know, they might have a thesis on investing in a certain location or even a specific project that really excites them. And, you know, that, that they really believe in. I mean, I think I always tell investors, LPs, you know, you invest in, in sponsors that you trust that have a good track record. Right. So that's, that's at that sponsor level. And to me, Due diligence the sponsor and then that's one level but then the other is project specific so i think that makes a lot of sense if a lot of your capital base are, are real estate folks they want to dig in you know to the pro forma and and you know look, look at those details um you know and you mentioned um geographic focuses um and i know arizona colorado and florida are three big states for your firm could you talk a little bit about these three states and, and why you like them specifically? I mean, and I know that they're all smile states. I would call, you know, is Colorado technically the Sun Belt? Uh, yeah, do- I don't know. It's maybe it's the tip of the smile. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, um, yeah, you know, you know, we're based in Chicago. I live here in Michigan. We still, we, we like the Midwest. We own a lot of assets here. Uh, but, you know, for, for roundup new construction, we, we've been kind of, 
following a lot of the same demographic trends that, that a lot of others are as well. And it's not really a secret that there's been a lot of, and this has been a lot of population job growth in the states that you mentioned. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, Phoenix has been one. We've been out there for like four years now. And, um, you know, we're, we just love that market. Um, it, it's had great growth. It's got, it's a low tax or a business friendly area. It's just continuing to add jobs left and right. The semiconductor space has been huge. It's got a big EV uh, community kind of growing up there. And, um, is every is anybody ever going to get sick of moving to Phoenix, or that's just going to be long after me and you are yeah, gone? I don't know. I mean, you're right. I mean, listen, it's July right now. It's uh, it's pretty warm down there, but uh, yeah. no, I don't. You know, the rest of the year is pretty good, and uh, I think uh, you know, it's just a high quality life area um, that stayed relatively affordable. I mean, that's changed a bit the last year or two. It's just been such sort of demand pressure, but it's yeah, it, it's it's really turned into a. Um, it's got a great sort of balanced economy and it, you know, it's just continue to grow. Um, Colorado is another easy one. Um, but Denver's a story. We're, we're pretty heavy in Colorado Springs and Denver, um, you know, yeah, really high quality of life. Just obviously a beautiful state. It's got a great, great, you know, job story and, um, kind of continued population. You know, Florida's, Everybody wants to be in Florida. We are, we are. Florida's bananas. I mean, the numbers that I'm hearing from Florida are like, I, I'm not saying they're going to dip. I mean, they certainly can't be sustainable, but. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, no doubt. And, you know, I mean, the growth and the, the rent growth and the pricing that you've seen in all these areas is not sustainable. Not to say that it's going to fall off of a cliff. It's more, you know, it, it was trending in a certain way through 2019, through 2020, and then you know, the last 18 months, it's just went through the moon and it's going to kind of revert more to the, to the mean growth that it had in the years leading up to that, which is still pretty Still much. very good, right? Still very good. Yeah. Last example. I mean, it was leading the country in rent growth for like three years in a row before the pandemic at like 8%. Now, 8% last year, replacement like, you know, 80th place or something like that. So, but, you know, it's, it's coming back, you know, Florida, you get it, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's got the, it's a lower tax, you know, area. It's got the climate. It's got the water. Um, you know, it's just got a lot of tailwinds. So we are just now trying to get our foothold in Florida. It's a place we want to be long term. Um, we don't have any existing projects there yet, uh, but we want it to be kind of a, a you know, our southeast leg of the drive off as we continue to grow. I like that. I like that. Yeah, you know, I appreciate how transparent and honest you know you've been with us today. Just talking about the pros and cons i mean i i think i love oz projects i love opportunities on funds i mean i think they're are they the best kept secret anymore they're not much of a secret but i mean considering how how good the program is and i mean that both from an impact investing you know mm-hmm. viewpoint but but also just from a pure financial standpoint i mean the, the tax benefits are incredible i there's been a lot of capital flowing into OZ projects in the past year, it seems like it's accelerated a little bit, but from my perspective, it still is, is not enough. I mean, it, if, if people actually crunch the numbers, I think there'd be even more capital flowing into OZs. Oh, I, I, t- I totally agree. I mean, you're right. It's not, I would say it's a secret anymore, but it's still a really small component of the overall market. And uh, yeah, I'd like to see that grow. Hopefully, you know, more of this, type of talk and, and getting out there to folks who are maybe not as exposed to it um, would only help because it is a great program and it's just a really tax advantage program. And, you know, yeah, 
wanted to go back to the pros and cons thing because you mentioned you had Mike off from Origin recently, right? They're friends and partners out large on a couple of different projects. And so uh, they have a tremendous larger commingled opportunity zone fund that you know I couldn't recommend uh, enough. Uh, they're great. Uh, I'm an LP in that fund, actually. So, you, yeah. should, you should, you'll, you'll do, you'll be very happy with that to do very well. Um, and, uh, you know, so yeah, they're, I think they're just the best of the best in that space. Um, and then if you want to get an individual project, it's a great GPs and get us a call. So on that note, Wink, where can our visitors go to learn more about Jackson Dearborn and also your current and upcoming offerings? Yeah, absolutely. So website is jacksondearborn.com. Um, you know, I'm sure it'll be you know, part of this uh, podcast here at some point, but jacksondearborn.com. It's got a pretty good profile on everything that we're doing, all the projects that we have going. Um, you know, we try to do a pretty good job of updating it, but there's always a few projects upcoming that haven't met yet to the website. Um, I'd encourage anybody to reach out. Um, I'm one of the managing partners here, but really accessible. Um, my email, my cell phone is, is on the site. I'm always happy to, to hop on a call um, and you know, talk through some of the stuff we're talking about right now and talk about some of our offerings. We've got a, we have an awesome, awesome A-plus location project in suburban Phoenix um, that we're going through entitlements on right now and we'll be you know, looking to do the uh, raise the remainder of the equity on later this year. And then another one, um, suburban Denver, that's part of this amazing master plan community. Um, that's going up there, uh, kind of in the DIA gateway area off of the airport, Aurora. Um, and those are a couple of projects that we have upcoming. Um, and uh, you know, have anybody reach out, we'd love to talk more about them. Great. I'm sure we have some listeners who, who would be interested. So, by the way, uh, to our listeners, if you want links to all of the resources we discussed in today's episode, including links to Jackson Dearborn and the current projects, you can access our show notes at altsdb.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform so that you get our new episodes as we release them. Ryan, thanks again for coming on the show today. Hey, thanks so much. It's great. Have you. Appreciate it. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 